0: Good morning, Valley Forge, King of Prussia and the greater Philadelphia area. This is We the People. The Constitution Matters, and we're coming to you over the freedom airways of WFYL, bringing you what we call the American view, that is the view of our founders, what government is all about. They said there is a creator God, the God of the Bible. Our rights come from him and from him alone. And the only purpose, the only purpose of human civil government is to protect and defend those God-given rights. Well, we're in the midst of a series looking at 12 Supreme Court cases that we call the Dirty Dozen, the worst Supreme Court cases. Some were uh, uh, undone later on in time, but uh, many of them still stand and, and are being considered. And this morning, we have a particularly interesting case called Stone v. Graham. By the way, I'm your host, Pastor David Whitney, and my two wonderful collaborators this great Friday morning are Phil Duffy, our constitutional instructor, and Mike Jeremita, who we call our warrior in the courtroom. And uh, we're going to examine Stone v. Graham, which the impact of that case is still with us today because Ten Commandments monuments all over the country have been taken down. They have been removed from courthouses and schoolrooms and all kinds of public places, even public parks, as if the Ten Commandments were some terrible plague that need to be expunged from society and this case stone v graham is kind of the centerpiece of that attempt to expunge the ten commandments from every corner of our country so phil why don't you bring us your thoughts on stone v graham
1: well it was only a matter of time before the opinion rendered by the supreme court of the united states in everson versus the board of education in 1947 would be extended to further erode legitimate powers described in the Constitution of the United States. The prior case had established a mythical wall of separation between church and state principle based upon a highly questionable interpretation of a mere letter sent to the Danbury Baptists in 2000. Uh, I'm sorry, that would be 1802, uh, by President Thomas Jefferson. Ignoring the literal language of the First Amendment, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Cornell's Legal Information Institute describes the history of the 1980 case before it reached the Supreme Court of the United States. A Kentucky statute requires the posting of a copy of the Ten Commandments purchased with private contributions on the wall of each public classroom in the state. Petitioners claiming that this statute violates the establishment and free exercise clauses of the First Amendment sought an injunction against its enforcement. The state trial court upheld the statute, finding that its avowed purpose was secular and not religious and that the statute would neither advance nor inhibit any religion or religious group, nor involve the state excessively in religious matters. The Supreme Court of the Commonwealth of Kentucky, affirmed by an equally divided court, Seidel Stone was a Kentucky parent and the plaintiff in the case, and James B. Graham, the superintendent of public instruction of Kentucky. So what was the Supreme Court opinion? The OES uh, website describes the opinion of the Supreme Court of the United States. In a five to four per curiam decision, the court ruled that the Kentucky law violated the first part of the test established in Lemon versus Kurtzman and thus violated the Establishment Clause of the Constitution. The court found that the requirement that the Ten Commandments be posted had no secular legislative purpose and was plainly religious in nature the court noted that the commandments did not confine themselves to arguably secular matters such as murder stealing etc but rather concerned matters such as the worship of god and the observance of the sabbath day there are two terms requiring explanation in this description per is defined in this way Latin for by the court, an opinion from an appellate court that does not identify any specific judge who may have written the opinion. And they give an overview. A per curiam decision is a court opinion issued in the name of the court rather than specific judges. Most decisions on the merits by the courts take the form of one or more opinions written and signed by the individual justices. Often, other judges uh, judges or justices will join these opinions. Even when these signed opinions are unanimous, they're not percorium, as the judges' justices' names still appear. Percorium decisions are given that label by the court issuing the opinion, and these opinions tend to be short. The opinions will typically deal with issues uh, which the issuing court views as relatively non-controversial. Mercurium decisions are not always unanimous and non-controversial. In fact, Chief Justice Warren E. Berger and Justices Blackman Stewart and Rehnquist dissented, giving Stone uh, v. Graham the narrowest of majority opinions, strong evidence of the controversial nature of the opinion. The second term is secular. Before exploring that, it's necessary to take a look at an interim case. So, what is the significance of Lemon versus Kurtzman? By interpreting the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment as a wall of separation between church and state, instead of Congress shall make no law, the Supreme Court in Everson versus Board of Education had extended a public invitation. To hear a plethora of cases initiated by secular plaintiffs, Everson versus the Board of Education did not lead directly to Stone versus Graham. In the 1971 case Lemon versus Kurtzman, the court attempted to establish a three-part test to determine if the alleged wall of separation between the church and state had been breached. The named plaintiff, Alton T. Lemon was a Pennsylvania resident and social worker who had a long career in public service and community organizing. David H. Kurtzman was the superintendent of public instruction of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. The case joined a similar action in the state of Rhode Island. It is described in a syllabus at the U.S. Supreme Court's Justia website. Rhode Island's 1969 Salary Supplement Act provides for a 15% salary supplement to be paid to teachers in non-public schools at which the average per pupil expenditure on secular education is below the average in public schools. Eligible teachers must teach only courses offered in the public schools using only materials used in the public schools and must agree not to teach courses in religion. A three-judge court found that about 25% of the state's elementary students attended non-public schools, about 95% of whom attended Roman Catholic-affiliated schools, and that to date, about 250 teachers at Roman Catholic schools are the sole beneficiaries under the Act. The court found that the parochial school system was an integral part of the religious mission of the Catholic Church and held that the act fostered excessive entanglement between government and religion, thus violating the Establishment Clause. Pennsylvania's non-public elementary and secondary education act, passed in 1968, authorizes the state superintendent of public instruction to purchase certain secular educational services from non-public schools, directly reimbursing those schools solely for teacher salaries textbooks, and instructional materials. Reimbursement is restricted to courses in specific secular subjects. The textbooks and materials must be approved by the superintendent, and no payment is to be made for any course containing any subject matter expressing religious uh, teaching or the morals or forms of worship of any sect. Contracts were made with schools that have more than 20% of all the students in the state most of which were affiliated with the Roman Catholic Church. The complaint challenging the constitutionality of the Act alleged that the church-affiliated schools are controlled by religious organizations, have the purpose of propagating and promoting a particular religious faith, and conduct their operations to fulfill that purpose. A three-judge court granted the state's motion to dismiss the complaint for failure to state a claim for relief finding no violation of the Establishment or Free Exercise Clause. The the U.S. Supreme Court held that both statutes were unconstitutional under the religion clauses of the First Amendment, as the cumulative impact of the entire relationship arising under the statutes involves excessive entanglement between government and religion. The finding in the Pennsylvania part of the case is interesting. Because the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania's Article 3, Section 15 of its 1968 Constitution states, no money raised for the support of the public schools of the Commonwealth shall be appropriated to or used for the support of any sectarian school. It would appear that since contracts were made between the Pennsylvania Department of Education and the non-secular schools, Those contracts violated the Commonwealth's Constitution. Isn't that a violation of due process as suggested by the 14th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States? After all, Article 4, Section 4 of the latter Constitution, contains this language. The United States shall guarantee to every state in this union a Republican form of government. A state that does not adhere to its own constitution, ratified by its citizens, does not provide a Republican form of government. The governing rule, however, is that the federal constitution has not been specifically violated, that state courts must resolve such issues. This is important because Lemon et al. needed to demonstrate standing in a federal court. And Congress had not passed these, if, and Congress had not passed these laws, but instead they were passed by the legislature of the state of Rhode Island and the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Thus, the reliance on the wall of separation between church and state fiction. It is difficult to see how Lemon versus Kurtzman would have been heard by the Supreme Court of the United States without some sort of precedence, having been established by Everson versus the Board of Education. And the opinion in Stone versus Graham was based upon Lemon versus Kurtzman. So let's take a look at the Lemon test and its application in Stone versus Graham. In Lemon versus Kurtzman, the Supreme Court held that both Rhode Island and Pennsylvania statutes were unconstitutional under the religion clauses of the First Amendment as the cumulative impact of the entire relationship arising under the statutes involves excessive entanglement between government and religion. Pew Research has summarized the Lemon test. In Lemon, the High Court began its analysis by setting out a three-part test for determining when a law violates the Establishment Clause. Looking to its own precedence, the Court concluded that for a law to comply with the Establishment Clause, it must one, have a secular purpose, two, have a predominantly secular effect, and three, not foster excessive entanglement between government and religion. Failing any one of these tests, state legislation would be considered unconstitutional. Let's defer for a moment the first two tests relating to the concept of secular education. And focus instead on the idea of excessive entanglement between government and religion. This should have been a red flag that the U.S. Supreme Court had gone down the wrong path in its interpretation of the Establishment Clause. No longer were courts required to determine the clear-cut case of congressional involvement in legislation. Now they were asked to make a personal judgment on what was excessive. Judicial action should not be about personal judgments, but impersonal adherence to the law. Stone versus Graham became just one of many cases that were based upon the Lemon test, although it is significant because for the first time, the concept of a secular education system is assumed to be the standard in constitutional law. It is time to look at that assumption. Nowhere in the Constitution of the United States is the federal government given any power over education. Each state is empowered to make its own rules about education. In Pennsylvania, its constitution states in Article 3, Section 14, the General Assembly shall provide for the maintenance and support of a thorough and efficient system of public education to serve the needs of the Commonwealth. This provision combines with its companion provision, Section 15, to define funding of public education. No money raised for the support of the public schools of the Commonwealth shall be appropriate to or used for the support of any sectarian school. Note that neither provision specifies that the school system must be secular, only that it not be sectarian literal interpretation of these provisions in the Constitution of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania should allow the discussion of history that has been influenced by religion. If that were not the case, then it is necessary to forbid any discussion of ancient civilizations and the entire Middle Ages, which were so heavily influenced by faith. Even in the modern era, it would be necessary to expunge the 1979 Iranian Revolution from the history books, because that was clearly a sectarian phenomenon. If one examines the original intent that led to the ratification of the First Amendment, it was not to create a secular society, but to assure that the federal government would not coerce citizens to adopt a national sectarian belief system and fund that system through taxation. The display of the Ten Commandments in each Kentucky classroom with plaques paid for with private contribution uh, avoids the taxation restriction. But does it teach the tenets of a specific sect? 2,000 years ago, the Jewish people might have made that claim. But even then, non-Jewish nations might have argued that the principles laid down in the Ten Commandments were not unique to the Jewish faith. When the First Amendment was ratified, the United States were largely a Christian federation. Even if the United States were a secular society, what role does the Ten Commandments play in education? The Ten Commandments are historical; are the historical foundation for the rule of law, independent of religious sect. The rule of law, in turn, is almost universally recognized as the foundation for Western civilization. Do we truly believe that by erasing this history, our educational system will better prepare its students to accept this nation's founding concept, as stated in Jefferson's Declaration of Independence? We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Jefferson, who was probably a deist, thought it important enough to acknowledge the creator that he included the idea in our nation's founding document. But he also recognized that the citizens of the United States, in conformity with natural law, were entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. These are concepts that focus on respect for the individual, not the collective. The pursuit of happiness is a distributive government idea With that government governing best that governs least, the ultimate purpose of government is to protect the natural rights of individuals. Everson versus Board of Education, Lemon versus Kurtzman, and Stone v. versus Graham turned the Declaration of Independence on its head. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Amen. Thank you, Phil. And thank you in particular for bringing in the case of uh, Lemon v. Kurtzman. And I'm fascinated. I mean, I've looked at that case before, but fascinated to find out that Lemon was a community organizer. <laughs> he was an early Obama, I guess, you know, and we know what uh, community organizers are all about. They're about imposing communism on on our, our, uh, our poor benighted uh, people who are willing to allow the community organizer to get them all stirred up. <laughs> well, anyway, Stone v. Graham uh, there in that examination of the Kentucky statute is fascinating to look at what they decided, because we're living with the the consequences of that decision to this day. In, in a sense, then Stone v. Graham has not been overturned. The Ten Commandments continue to be attacked, torn out of uh, not just classrooms, but courtrooms. And uh, our good friend uh, in Alabama, Chief Justice Roy Moore, from when he was at the lowest point of um, uh, being the lowest judge in the state kind of, he had his first encounter with this when he hand-carved, no expense to the to the government whatsoever, to hand-carve a wooden plaque of the Ten Commandments that he hung in his courtroom, and he was immediately attacked, based on Stone v. Graham. You can't have the Ten Commandments in the courtroom. This is, this is a violation of separation of church and state, all based, as you rightly point out, on uh, Lemon v. Kurtzman, and uh, clearly going all the way back, as we see, to Everson v. Board of Education, which was kind of the first... The nose of the camel uh, under the tent and the rest of the tent uh, has been destroyed by this. So let's consider some of the statements they actually make in their opinion. And and one of the advantages of Stone v. Graham, it's one of the shorter (laughs) Supreme Court opinions. It's it's a quick read compared to some of the others. But anyway, uh, let me quote the uh, Stone v. Graham. The trial court found the avowed purpose of the statute to be secular, even as it labeled the statutory declaring self-serving. Under this court's rulings, however, in other words, under the Supreme Court, so they're saying this is what the court in in Kentucky decided, but uh, under the Supreme Court, under our rulings, I'm, I'm paraphrasing that. Under this court's ruling, however, such an avowed secular purpose is not sufficient to avoid conflict with the First Amendment. And then they go on, go on to, quote, Abington School District v. Schemt. That was the case in 1963 that banned uh, prayer and, and public Bible reading in schools. No, 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 you can't do any of that. That's a, uh, that is a, a government establishment of religion. Obviously, ignoring the clear statement of the First Amendment, Congress shall make no law establishing a religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. No mention about state governments, no mention about county governments, no mention about local school boards in the First Amendment. And as we covered last week uh, when we looked at the uh, attempted Blaine Amendment, those who ratified the 14th Amendment clearly never intended that the 14th Amendment would incorporate the First Amendment against the states. They knew it would not incorporate the First Amendment against the states, which is why the Blaine Amendment was proposed that would read, had it ever passed, and it did not pass, it did not become part of our Constitution, but had it passed, it would read, the state shall not uh, establish a religion. So because that did not pass, it meant states could still establish religion. As we covered last week, all 13 original states had some form of established Christianity. In their uh, form of government, some had blatant uh, establishment of religion for uh, all the New England states had congregational religion and the uh, uh, southern states all had the uh, uh, Episcopal Church established as the religion and the middle states had some mix, but all of them had Christianity somehow built into their state government. And there was nothing illegal about that. Because when the First Amendment was ratified, it only said Congress can't do this because when the First Amendment was ratified, some of the states had established churches in their state, even up until the 1830s and 40s and, and 50s in some cases. So clearly they're misinterpreting history here when they go on to say in Abington uh, uh, School District v. Schemt, uh this court held in Abington v. Schemt held unconstitutional the daily reading of Bible verses and the Lord's Prayer in the public schools, despite the school district's assertion that such secular purposes as the promotion of moral values, the contradiction to the material materialistic trends of our times, the perpetuation of our institutions, and the teaching of literature, that's what the schools were arguing. It goes on to say the preeminent purpose of posting for posting the Ten Commandments on the schoolroom walls is plainly religious in nature. So they're arguing what the school systems must be is absolutely secular and non-religious. They have to be completely neutral on the subject of religion. But wait a minute. Neutral on the subject of religion means tearing the Ten Commandments down? That's not neutral. That's an attack. In fact, the Supreme Court themselves in another case admitted that atheistic secular humanism is itself a religion. So see what's really happening here. We're being lied to. They're saying, oh, no, no, we're not going to allow any establishment of religion. But actually, they are establishing secularism. And what is the tenet of secularism? God doesn't exist. Or if God does exist, he doesn't matter at all. And therefore, we need not mention God in any course or any subject matter. We need not mention that God is the creator of the universe. Oh, but wait a minute. If we look at the Declaration of Independence, it clearly states that God's the creator of the universe. In fact, if the Declaration of Independence states that's the foundation of our entire legal system, the idea that God is the creator. So if God's the creator, Declaration of Independence says God's the creator. Oh, but we can't teach that in the schools. Oh, I get it. That means you can't teach the Declaration of Independence. You can't teach the philosophy of government of our founders. And that's exactly what they have done. And in Stone v. Graham here, they're asserting that secularism, is actually what they are enforcing against the schools, which means secularism, the religion that the Supreme Court themselves have admitted, uh, is a religion, atheistic secular humanism. That's the religion they're enforcing while lying to us, saying, oh, no, 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 we can't allow any promotion of religion. Again, I go back to the quoting that uh, prayer in the public schools, uh, the Lord's Prayer in the public schools, despite the school's the, uh, district's assertion that such prayer is for secular purposes, as the promotion of moral values, the contradiction to the materialistic trends of our time, the perpetuation of the institutions and of the teaching of literature, end quote. That is quoting the school board. And then it goes on to say the preeminent purpose for posting the Ten Commandments on the uh, schoolroom walls is plainly religious in nature. The Ten Commandments are undeniably a sacred text in the Jewish and Christian faiths, and no legislative recitation of a supposed secular purpose can blind us to that fact. The commandments do not confine themselves to arguably secular matters, such as honoring one's parents, killing or murder, adultery, stealing, false witness, covetousness. Uh, Rather, the first part of the commandments concerns the religious duties of believers, worshiping the Lord God alone, avoiding idolatry, not using the Lord's name in vain, and observing the Sabbath day. Uh, They're correct in this assertion. It goes on to say, posting of religious texts on the wall serves no such educational function. In other words, we cannot let any religious moral teaching be part of what we conduct in the classroom. Interesting. The Ten Commandments says things like, thou shalt not murder. Oh, oh, we don't want to teach that to any of the children in the classroom, because they might get the idea that murder is wrong, and they might not come in with a gun to this school and murder their fellow students like Columbine and all the other school killings that so many of these school massacres have been students. Right. Or maybe students who just graduated. that For some reason, they come back to their school and want to murder uh, fellow classmates. Oh, perhaps that's because they were never taught thou shalt not murder because the Ten Commandments were forbidden as a result of Stone v. Graham. They go on in Stone v. v. Graham to say uh, this posting of religious texts on the serves no educational function. If the posted copies of the Ten Commandments are to have any effect at all, and notice their words here very carefully, if the posted copies of the Ten Commandments are to have any effect at all, it will be to induce the school children to read, meditate upon, Perhaps to venerate and obey the commandments. Oh, horror of horrors. If we have students obeying the commandment, thou shalt not murder. We can't have any of that. And then uh, uh, my commentary. Then, Then they add, it is not a permissible state objective under the establishment clause. That is, and he'd say, however desirable it might be as a matter of private devotion, it's not permissible state objective under the Establishment Clause. So the education system, in other words, can never teach children that's wrong to murder. Ah, Maybe that's why so many of them have abortions. Hey, nothing wrong with murder at all. Uh, we cannot teach them any moral values whatsoever. My friends, if you educate a, a child to have no moral values, what you have raised is a pagan, a heathen. Indeed, a barbarian who thinks it's fine to go murder other people, thinks it's fine to steal property, thinks it's fine to lie in all the commandments of God, to violate and blaspheme God. They think it's fine, and that's what the school has taught them. In a sense, the school has taught them this by negating all of that, taking all of that off. Take the Ten Commandments off the wall, and the children never see that. They never learn to venerate those commandments, and they go to live their lives in a completely immoral way, and we have the collapse of a civilization. Indeed, I would argue that all education at root is religious in one sort of another. What they're doing here in Stone v. Graham is imposing atheistic secular humanism on the government run schools throughout America. And if you do that, the results are very clear. Just look at, uh, you know, communist Venezuela, or atheistic secular humanism, or communist Cuba, atheistic secular humanism, or look at the former USSR, communist, uh, atheistic secular humanism. That's what you or look to China. And the d- draconian tyrannical government there or look to any place like uh, Cambodia where, where communism, atheistic secular humanism was imposed. It's a awful disaster. No one's God given rights are protected in such a, a, a state. And so it's, it's a it's a crime that they said. If those copies of the Ten Commandments have any effect at all, it will be to induce the school children to read, meditate upon and perhaps venerate and obey the commandments. And this is not a permissible state objective under the Establishment Clause. But again, these fellows are violating the law by forcing the incorporation doctrine upon the American people. It is a lie. The incorporation doctrine is repeated here. And let me quote what they say here. The First Amendment provides in relevant part, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Well, wait a minute. It says Congress there. Can't you read those words? Then they go on to say this prohibition is applicable to the states through the 14th Amendment. And then they quote Abington School District v. Schempp and so on. So they claim by this point in time. By 1980, when Stone v. Graham, by 1980, they're claiming it is an established doctrine, a constitutional truth that the 14th Amendment incorporated all the Bill of Rights. Oh, uh, yeah, except maybe the Second Amendment. We don't incorporate that, but all the other ones, we definitely incorporate all of those and we force the states to obey that rather than what is clear in the text of the Bill of Rights. Congress is limited by those Bill of Rights, First Amendment, Third all the way through. But It does not limit the states because the states clearly could have an established religion. The states clearly did have established religion. So it is ignorance that they're basing the, the hope that people will buy this lie based on an ignorant idea that the incorporation doctrine is actually true. It is not. And it is not illegal. It is not unconstitutional for Ten Commandments to be posted anywhere in the states, except if you say that. Somehow posting the Ten Commandments is establishing a religion. Wait a minute. Which religion are you establishing? Are you establishing Judaism? Are you establishing Christianity? No, you're establishing neither. You're simply posting here's the Ten Commandments that are the foundation of law. As our founders clearly said, they are the the laws of nature and nature's God upon which our constitutional republic is founded. So I would argue this court that did Stone v. Graham is (laughs) anti-American. They reject the foundation of law and government in America. They reject the American view of law and government, which simply put, there is a creator God. Our rights come from him. And the only purpose of human civil government is to protect those God-given rights. One of those rights is which to educate children morally and educate them with an understanding that they're accountable to this same God who created all the universe and they will be held accountable on judgment day. Now, for most of these justices, I I don't know that any of them are still alive. So if that's the case, all of them have stood before their creator. Having to give an account for their wicked violation of their oath of office. And I dare say for some of them, I guess there's going to be hell to pay. Maybe they're shoveling sulfur uh, right now at, at this very moment. But we ought to pray for judges everywhere that they would repent of this wicked incorporation doctrine and return to a true constitutional understanding of law and government. Well, Mike, what are your thoughts on Stone v. Graham?
2: Thanks, Pastor Whitney. I appreciate it. Did you say that Abington sued Shemp from the Three Stooges? What kind of monster <laughs> sued <laughs> Shemp from the Three Stooges?
0: Oh, they're ridiculous. smacking each other over the head with a brick, right? <laughs> <laughs> you
2: now, like I mentioned last week in law school, you didn't learn the law. They claimed and said that they were teaching us how to think like lawyers. This is important because knowing the law is such a small part of the process. And don't get me wrong. I want to go into the courtroom knowing the law better than anyone else in that room. Having focused my practice on one particular area throughout my entire career has made that much more realistic. But I'll often have someone approach me outside of work and ask all kinds of wild questions about specific laws. You know, I once had a paralegal ask me some question about an obscure traffic law. And my response was, yeah, I'm sorry, I really don't do any traffic law. Her response was, yeah, but you went to law school, so you learned this stuff. And I couldn't help but laugh. You know, you're in law school for three years, and how much of that, if not all of it, do you think it would take to memorize every single traffic law of a given state? And not to mention that I went to law school in Oklahoma, so perhaps we were supposed to learn every single traffic law of all 50 states. I must have missed that day or something. But knowing the law itself is only part of the equation. The major question becomes, how do you apply that law? Ultimately, a judge will decide if a dispute arises. But if you have legislation and then no case law, often a client will have a question such as, under this law, can I do X? And in those cases, attorneys are often hired to write opinion letters. And if you go to different attorneys, you might get different opinions, and none of them are an official statement of law. Only judges through written opinions can make official statements of law. That means if the guy in the black robe disagrees with your attorney's opinion, the opinion that you relied upon, the guy in the black robe can say, who cares what your attorney said, he was wrong. I have buddies who work in these areas of the law where they are often asked to write opinion letters and they joke that it'll be 35 years and their career will be over before anyone has any idea whether they did a good job. So when the courts are trying to apply these laws, they usually create tests. Now, I'm not going to deny that there are certainly instances where a court decides the result that they want at the outset and then spends their time in the opinion trying to justify that result. But when the courts are in good faith trying to apply these laws, they tend to create these tests. And if there are tests, then presumably it would be easier for everyone to understand how these laws will be applied. It provides some level of predictability to not only attorneys who would be advising clients, but also for the clients themselves. Now, I know that it probably sounds like I'm making this out to be a good thing, but that's really not my intention. Don't get me wrong. I'd rather have guidance when advising a client than taking a shot in the dark. But there are serious problems that come with the court making these tests. People, as of late, on both sides of the aisle, really, have expressed concerns about legislating from the bench. And this is what we get with these tests. These tests cannot be found anywhere in the Constitution. You can't, with a straight face, claim that these tests are a result of the will of the people. These tests are made up by the courts and have all the impact in the world regarding how these laws will be applied. And if that's how the law is applied, then essentially, that's what the law is. Now, it would seem there's a simple solution to this. And if it makes sense, it's not an easy solution, but it's a simple solution. This has to do with the legislature and going back to the law itself. If the court's tests or even their opinions are completely contrary to what was intended to be the law or the way the law was supposed to be applied, then you need to go back and revise the law to make that clear. If it's a constitutional amendment or appeal replacement with legislation, there's a mechanism to do so. As they say, if there's a will, there is quite literally a way. We've seen this in Pennsylvania with firearms law uh, preemption, where the legislatures have repeatedly strengthened the provision based upon actions of local governments trying to skirt this law. But we know how difficult it is to amend the Constitution and even to amend legislation. Why? Well, if we can't agree on the amended version, was the true intent really ever truly the will of the people? Perhaps we could be encouraged to draft wiser, more specific legislation to begin with. But I'll be honest, that's just a pipe dream. There are reasons why these laws are left vague. People can't agree on anything. So the the probability is that if it were proposed more specifically at the outset, there would be no agreement and therefore no law. I think that sometimes that's the better course of action.
0: Well, thank you, Mike, because uh, we look at these things. we I'm left at least scratching my head wondering what. Ah. How in the world did they come to this conclusion? And, uh, yeah, Stone v. Graham is is one of those that uh – uh, continues to haunt our country, in my view, because I, I see the battle for the Ten Commandments continuing to go on uh, day after day where uh, uh, any public display of the Ten Commandments is considered a crime. How dare you allow the Ten Commandments to be seen by anybody when uh, our founders would have said, wait a minute, that's the foundation of all law. In fact, uh, uh, you know, the, some of the founders like John Witherspoon stated that bluntly and plainly, the foundation of all laws right here in the Ten Commandments. So. If you can't let the people see the Ten Commandments, I guess you don't want them to see the law uh, that that is the foundation of it all.
2: It sort of seems like a game of telephone, right? Because you've got what what is the law of the land, what does the law say? And then you've got some letter that gets interjected in there, and then you've got a court who misinterprets part of the letter without any context, and then from there you get a test. And from then on, from that point on, all the case law has to do with the tests, and they're like three steps behind, and that's how we end up with this stuff.
0: And, and those tests, in particular, you know, Lemon v. Kurtzman, It seems to me that there's a guarantee for judges to have lifetime occupation. I mean, they're going to be Mm. judging, as you said, Phil, all kinds of cases are now available to them because, okay, who's going to determine what is excessive? Excessive entanglement. And who who gets to determine a secular effect of a particular or a secular purpose? Well, it winds up being the judges. So the judges have a lifetime of employment and they've become more and more important. I guess I would as I look at some of these Supreme Court cases, I, I would say the thing that is clear with all of them is the court is expanding its power. And expanding it greatly, and from my view, at least, beyond what uh, uh, constitutionally was was deemed to be appropriate by our founders. I don't know. What, what do you What do you both think of that?
1: Well, of course, we we are aware of Lord Acton's uh, words: uh, "Power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely." This is this is a a negative attribute in the behavior of mankind. It's something to be to be managed and and controlled. So, um, I, I think a lot of um, the founding wisdom that, that I found uh, in going through the history of, of our nation uh, during its um, initial period was that uh, they were highly sensitive to that negative attribute of human nature uh, that it would uh, – that government was, in the final analysis, nothing more than a bunch of people. And those people were distinguished from other people by the fact that they had this so-called governmental power, the, the ability, um, within restraints, uh, the ability to impose will, their will, on the rest of them. And so uh, a great deal of effort was put into uh, establishing written constitutions and and uh, establishing legal systems that were based upon constitutions to assure that uh, it was the will of the people and not the will of the governing uh, that would matter. But it seems to me that in these three cases in particular, uh, we have wandered a long, long way from that concept that uh, uh, that government governs best that governs least.
2: Hmm.
0: I- ironic, I-, I see what here, the Supreme Court has repeatedly ruled that pornography is permissible. You know. Whatever kind of pornography you want to publish, that's permissible. But the Ten Commandments, that's worse than pornography. We can't allow anybody to see that. Whoa, what irony there is.
1: You know, I was glad to to see that the courts uh, recognize uh, atheism as a belief system, which indeed it is. I mean, uh, atheists are very, very specific about the fact that uh, there is no creator, that all of these things that we see around us happen spontaneously, uh, and so uh, atheism is truly a religion, and the only the only uh, label uh, that addresses uh, true secular people is agnosticism, and you know, having been an agnostic at, at uh, one part of my my life, like I know uh, from experience. What that's all about. It's not that that you are promoting a particular religion, a particular set of beliefs. You just throw up your hands and say, hey, it's all beyond me. Mm -hmm. No, I can't I can't figure it out. Well, that's truly secular. But take the next step to the right on the scale, if you will, and become a deist, like probably Jefferson was, and you're already acknowledging that the, the the world was created by a creator. And uh, yeah, you may not go so far as to to believe in a uh, Jesus of Nazareth and and uh, the Christian faith and and or the Jewish faith and and so forth, but you know at least you acknowledge that there's a creator. So yeah, you could say that uh, that's that's not secular.
0: Mm-hmm. And when you look at the the fact that that idea that there is a creator and our rights come from him really is the foundation of law and government, we have a school system that's teaching the opposite. Teaching there is no creator. Everything evolved from nothing, you know, and that's a, a head scratcher. Wait a minute, how did everything evolve from nothing? Nothing existed, and then there was something. And that something exploded and, uh, you know, everything came out of that. It's like that takes a lot of faith. <laughs> Believe me, I think atheism takes more faith than, than the Christian faith. There's more evidence for the Christian faith than there certainly is for, for atheism because the whole problem of their, their theory that everything came by a series of accidents, mistakes, mutations and, you know, teaching children that. You evolved from a monkey and that a monkey evolved from some slimy thing that crawled up out of the ocean and began to walk. And, you know, that takes a lot of faith to believe all of that. But you've uh, you've told the children you're just a compilation of mistakes, mutations and errors that uh, are, you know, are meaningless. There's no meaning to anything at all. Uh, So why not just live like an animal? You know, because after all, the law of evolution says the strong kill the weak. So why not? And by the way, this this was the philosophy, the specific philosophy stated by the Columbine murderers. They were evolutionists and they claimed they were the strong and they went into that school to kill the weak because that's what evolution taught them. The strong must kill the weak. So when this court says we're going to get rid of all religion out of school, we're going to expunge religion from school, no, they're not. They're just substituting the atheistic secular religion for the religion of our founders, uh, some form of Christianity or another. And
1: you know, that's – I'm sorry. Go ahead. ahead. Uh, go ahead. Th- that's interesting because uh, I finally, after all of these years, I picked up a, a yellowed copy of The Origin of Species uh, by Darwin and thought, well, you know, it's time that I re- read this thing uh, firsthand. Pages were too yellowed, so I had to get a copy from, uh, um, for Kindle. Which is working very nicely, and I'm only fifteen percent through it, and I'm kind of amazed that I haven't found this kind of implication so far in his writing. Uh, now I'm only fifteen percent in, but everything seems to be cause and effect, which you know kind of argues against the uh, uh, the typical secular idea. So I, I'm wondering how much of this was was Darwin himself. And how much of it was uh, people extrapolating uh, Darwin's thinking? I can't answer that question today, but maybe another month or so we could we could discuss that.
0: <laughs> well, and it, it's true that uh, certainly those who promoted Darwinian thinking in every area of life uh, those those are the ones who who brought us into the disaster. Darwin was just proposing a biological theory, and you know he actually said that if you could not find the uh, species in between, you know, the missing link kind of creatures, well then, his theory was disproved. And uh, I have yet to heard heard that there is one of those missing links that has been proposed that hasn't been shown to be a complete fraud. Like, uh, I think it was Lucy was a bunch of bones scattered over an acre and a half of ground and it ultimately proved that one of those bones was from a pig and another from a human being. And they just took all these bones, put them together said, so, yeah, this is Lucy. Yeah, she's the missing link. It's like, huh, fraud. Again and again, these uh, supposed missing links have been proven to be frauds. And instead, what we have, if we have an honest investigation of the created order, whether you're talking about astronomy or whether you're talking about biology or chemistry, whatever field you pursue, you will find that it is clearly there is a design to everything. In other words, you couldn't study the science of astronomy without studying the design of the universe. It's there, the the laws of the universe, all of that stuff. All of that points to some designer. Now, we might not agree as as to who that designer is, but the evidence for design just shouts out even more than in Darwin's day. Uh, You see, Darwin had a view of the cell as this simple mechanical thing that, you know, is just not complex, just a simple little black box. He never knew what was inside the cell. But the microbiologists who've now explored the insides of the the cell say it's amazingly complex. There's no such thing as a simple one-celled organism. When you look at what's going on inside, it's extremely complex. And I can commend to everyone who would like to read on that. Michael Behe's excellent book, Darwin's black box and he proves that the darwinian idea that the simplicity of the single cell and so forth no 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 it's extremely complex and the complexity that he he unfolds in that book he is basically proving the argument for intelligent design, not coming to a conclusion as to who that designer is. But there's clearly a mind that is greater than our mind because we're just trying to understand this now, you know, in the year uh, 2000 and following. And we're, we're just groping to understand some of these complexities that obviously someone designed them. And their far greater mind than ours put it all together. We're just following in the footsteps of that uh, grand design. So, again, the, the schools, by teaching evolution, are doing a disservice to our students in terms of their education, actual scientific education. But also, I would argue, in terms of what they're teaching them regarding civil government, because if evolution is true. And then civil government consists in nothing that the strong destroy and pillage the weak. If the person's weak, then the government's there to steal from them, to kill them, to take all their goods, right? Uh, but that's not the purpose of government, according to our founders, because there is a creator God and his law, the laws of nature and nature's God, governs what governments are supposed to be doing. They're supposed to be protecting the God-given rights that are listed there in the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery. That's the job of government to punish violations of the laws of nature and nature's God. And when government fails to do that, then government fails to do its its essential job. And that's what our founder's whole argument is in the declaration. We need to overturn the government of King George III and create our own government, a government that will follow the laws of nature and nature's God.
1: But you know, there's a, an interesting uh, set of studies uh, conducted at Yale University called the um, Infinite Cognition Studies, and they've given us uh, a remarkable insight. Uh, virtually everybody, I think Rousseau and and certainly Locke, um, had had looked at the development of the the human mind, if you will, as being an absolute. Uh, they call it, I think, tabula rasa, a, a blank slate. And they've conducted these experiments in in just a number of different ways, changing all the variables and so forth. And they consistently come out with the same, the same result to to these tests. The basic idea is I'll I'll just give one example. Um, um, Infants are brought into the laboratory and they're shown a, a a puppet show. Uh, And in, in one of these puppet shows, a uh, cat is attempting to get into a box and the bad uh, bad puppy uh, slams the the uh, door down and prevents the the cat from getting into the box and this goes on for about three times and then after that a good puppy enters the the scene and holds the the uh, top of the box up so that the cat can jump in and the curtain comes down and then both... Uh, the good puppy and the bad puppy are offered to these children, and eighty percent of them select the good puppy, indicating that hey, you know, it's it's more than just spontaneous and exposure to uh, uh, whoever that teaches us to who gives us our our sense of right and wrong. We may be wired from birth not all of us but the uh, preponderance of us are wired from birth to understand the difference between good and evil
0: and a good education would build upon that you know exactly <laughs> which exactly. is what the 10 commandments is designed to do to build upon that that inner sense of here's right and wrong and to reinforce that And so when a society refuses to reinforce a moral standard, what you have is, well, the collapse of that society. And by the way, I don't think that was by mistake that this was done. You know, I I don't know whether these justices understood what they were doing or, or if they were part of a larger movement. But clearly, we understand that the communists have promised us that they would take us without firing a shot. They would destroy our constitutional republic and turn us into a Marxist, well, I call a Marxist hellhole, which is what they all turn into ultimately. But they would do that without firing a shot because they would so corrupt every institution in our country. They would so take over every institution in our country that they'd be able to conquer us without firing a shot. And they understood very clearly early, early on, back in the 1830s, that to accomplish this goal, they had to get to the children. And they had to delink the children from their parents' moral set of values. And they had to inculcate their own set of values. And again, like I said, all education, I believe, is religious because it's inculcating one set of values or another set of values. And those values are based on some religious system. Ten Commandments based on the Bible, based on a a Christian and and Judeo uh, understanding of, of law and government, atheistic secular humanism. Basically, Karl Marx is God, and whatever his Ten Commandments are, the Ten Planks of his Communist Manifesto, that's what we need to follow. And if you follow those Ten Planks, look at what happens. The abolition of the family takes place. The abolition of all private property takes place. And so if you're going to inculcate that and accomplish that, you've got to persuade the next generation. You're not going to persuade me that the loss of private property is a good thing. But you are persuading kindergarten students and first grade students in the in the government indoctrination centers today that, yeah, private property is a bad thing because people's carbon footprint is too big and, and people are wasting too much resources and on and on it goes. But they're propagandizing those children to accept a communist religious system of government in rejection of ours. And so I would say they're uh, anti-American. And they're working for the destruction of our constitutional republic. So one of the things that we need to do uh, to recover our republic is take the indoctrination of these children away from uh, the communists and the others that are in, in control of these systems.
1: if you look at at um, uh, the course of, of civilizations, what you realize is that they they um, they're like a curve, if you will. I guess it's a sine curve or something of that nature, where um, they grow and then peak and then descend and, and finally taper off to nothing. Um, you know, we, we've been conditioned to think in terms of civilizations like Rome as being taken down by the barbarians. That's not the case. I mean, once you get into uh, all of these civilizations, what you realize is that uh, they are have become so internally corrupt that they are just – they are – Pickings for for uh, the outsiders to come in and and take whatever they want and destroy whatever they want. So it's 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 all about the internal. Uh, and I, I think people like Jefferson have have spoken about this. You know that uh, we need not fear external enemies. You know, <laughs> fear what's going on within our our own society because this is this is where the. Uh, The forces arise to destroy civilizations.
0: Mm -hmm. Mike, any thoughts in terms of uh, Second Amendment and how it relates to uh, tearing down the Ten Commandments and uh, the protection of life, which, by the way, I think the protection of life is built into uh, the commandment, thou shalt not murder. The positive side of that commandment is that we need to defend life.
2: Yeah, that's a big one when you mention the word uh, murder, going back to the original text, because you'll have people who say that if you're a Christian, then you can't defend yourself, which is uh, nonsense as we know. And the second thing is that you were talking about how if you had the Ten Commandments in schools, perhaps uh, these values would be instilled in the students from an early age and we wouldn't have these issues that take place. But instead, uh, their response seems to be that, hey, let's take away the firearms rights of all the people who did nothing wrong. Instead, that would be the better solution in their minds. Uh, So it's just uh, ridiculous on all fronts.
0: So teach the children that murder is good, but don't allow anybody protecting them to protect themselves from the murders. Wow. (laughs) What a recipe (laughs) for chaos, anarchy. and, uh, (laughs) And we see it. I mean, the summer of 2020, look at what happened to those cities, the 300 cities where the riots burned and murdered and looted and pillaged and uh, nothing was done to them at all. And that's the other thing. When murderers are let free and there are no punishment for their murder, what are they going to do? They're all going to go out and do the same
1: again and again and again. Yeah, I think uh, there may be a correlation. You know, I mentioned the uh, infant cognition uh, studies that were being done at Yale. Uh, nobody has has pushed to explain the other 20%, you know, those that don't seem to understand the difference between right and wrong. Do they grow up to be criminals, the uh, psychopaths and all the rest? We don't know. And I don't know that we have the courage to uh, to study that kind of thing. Certainly, uh, that would be totally politically incorrect. <laughs>
0: But we're seeing the end results of Abing, I mean, Stone v. Graham here. You take the Ten Commandments away and generation after generation never learn these things. And we're seeing on the streets of our cities. I live a little bit south of Baltimore, murder capital USA, perhaps, but at least a murder a day takes place in that city. Uh, And most of those murders never uh, ever see a trial, never see inside of a jail. Ninety some percent of them literally get away with it. And the ones that are caught, like the squeegee, murders, a horrible murder last summer. It appears they're trying to plea bargain the guy so that he escapes uh, the penalty. Well, this is We the People, The Constitution Matters, and coming to you over the airways of WFYL. Go to our podcast, 1180wfyl.com. Ask your friends to join us on Friday mornings at 8 a.m. We the People, The Constitution Matters.